0: All right, so I'm gonna tell you guys a story about one of my greatest high school achievements, okay? And so yes, I'm gonna live in the past here for a little bit, okay? Um, and, and the story is essentially how uh, I conned my way into a B grade in my sophomore U.S. history class, okay? It's one of my greatest high school achievements. You might not believe, sorry mom, my mom's here. Sorry, I, I conned my way into a B grade in this class. And so here's how the story goes. I, I start off this semester in U.S. history class my sophomore year uh, with this teacher, Mr. Parkin. Uh, that's his real name, sorry. Uh, and he, I just realized he was not the best teacher. I just would watch him and I would just see him and just go, oh man, this guy is not a real teacher. And so after a, a semester of watching this kind of psychopath teacher, I realized, he won't listen to this, I realized, I realized. I didn't, well, I came up with a hypothesis. I thought he didn't actually grade any of our work. That was my theory. My theory was he didn't grade any of our work, he just made us do all this busy work, and then he gave us grades based on how much he liked us or not, or his perception of what our grades should be. And so this was my hypothesis at the end of the first semester of this class. I said to myself, okay, I don't think he actually grades this. So then I said to my buddy Dan, I said, listen, I'm not going to do any work at all second semester. I'm not going to do any of this work because I'm sure he doesn't grade it. But what I will do is this. What he loved to do, and this shows kind of some of his uh, poor teaching skills, he would berate students for their poor work almost every class. And he would say, this is so bad. And he would just kind of rail on even students with good work and talk about how bad it was. So I made a plan that every time that he was doing that to another student, I would chime in and say, yes, Mr. Parkin, their work wasn't as good as mine today, was it? And he had this kind of he had this kind of automatic response whenever I said that, like, yeah, right on, right on, right on. <laughs> And so I did this for a whole semester. I didn't do any work, okay? I know this is unbelievable, but I promise it's true. I didn't do any work. I think I might not have even taken the tests. I didn't want any paper trail linked to me. I just didn't do anything. So we get to the end of the semester. There was this huge sophomore project due. You guessed it. I didn't do that either. And so... I'm sitting there, I'm I'm getting a little bit nervous because it feels like a pretty big gamble to say, okay, uh, maybe he just grades us based on how much he likes us. And I get my report card back, B. I got a B grade with no work. And it was an honors B, so it was worth an A. I felt so good. My friend Dan was so angry with me. (laughs) Because I was bragging about it all semester, that that was what I was going to do. And this is just one of my greatest high school achievements. I read this psychopath of a teacher, and I said, he doesn't actually grade our work. I'm not going to do it. And I got to have a fun semester where I didn't do any work in that class. And so that's one of my greatest high school achievements. I will, I, this was just an excuse to tell you guys about it. Because today, in 1 Kings 6, in our We Want a King series, we're looking at this third king in the series. That, and if you're new with us, we're... We're spending time looking at the first three kings of Israel, and we've gotten to Solomon starting last week. In this uh, chapter that we're in today with King Solomon, we're going to see one of his greatest achievements, one of his most lasting achievements, something that he did that has reverberations to today and to multiple religions to today, and that is that Solomon built the temple of God. And the temple of God ends up being one of the greatest achievements of Solomon. Is it as on par with my achievement in high school? I don't know. Um, but it's one of, that sounds blasphemous. It is, okay? It's way better. Um, and so we have King Solomon build this temple of God. And so we're going to be in 1 Kings 6 today. And what we're going to look at is three things that we see in this chapter of 1 Kings 6. We're going to see the temple, we're going to see the covenant, and we're going to see the king. Of 1 Kings 6. Okay? So we're gonna look at those th- three things in depth. And each one of those three things that we're gonna see as we go through this really point to Jesus and how Jesus brings a better version of all three of those things, whether it's the temple itself, the covenant, or a king. And so that's what we're gonna be doing today. Uh, and so let's hop in to 1 Kings 6. We'll start by looking at uh, the temple. Okay? And so let me take another quick drink. And so, First Kings six uh, is really just a descriptive chapter on how they build the temple of God together. And you get these chapters in the Bible a lot of times when they're building different things, and they give very a lot of details about that. And so I'm going to read the whole chapter. I'm just kidding. I'm not going to read the whole chapter. But I'm going to read a handful of verses from 1 Kings 6 that kind of describe this building of the temple of God. And so I'm going to hop through 1 Kings 6 for us as we look at this temple that Solomon had built. Okay, so let's start with verses 1 and 2. It says this In the 480th year, after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. The house that King Solomon built for the Lord was 60 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. Okay, let's hop down to verses 14 and 15. So Solomon built the house and finished it. He lined the walls of the house on the inside with boards of cedar. From the floor of the house to the walls of the ceiling, he covered them on the inside with wood, and he covered covered the floor of the house with boards of cypress. Now let's hop down to verses 21 and 22. And Solomon overlaid the inside of the house with pure gold, and he drew chains of gold across in front of the inner sanctuary and overlaid it with gold. And he overlaid the whole house with gold until all the house was finished. Also, the whole altar that belonged to the inner sanctuary, he overlaid with gold. And then the last couple of verses that we'll read about the temple, verses 29 and 30. Around all the walls of the house, he carved engraved figures of cherubim and palm trees and open flowers in the inner and outer rooms. The floor of the house he overlaid with gold in the inner and outer rooms. Okay, let's pause there. Now, if you don't know about the temple, if you don't know much about the Old Testament, uh, one good thing to know about the temple is the temple was built as a replacement of the tabernacle, okay? And the tabernacle was something that God had his people make once he freed them from Egypt. Out in the wilderness, he made them make kind of like a mobile temple, which was really kind of this uh, very uh, intensely structured tent that had a lot of this same imagery in it, and so God to to show the people of Israel His manifest presence with them, had them build this tabernacle, and then many years later, as we get to Solomon now, he's building this temple that really is going to become a replacement for the tabernacle, which was kind of like this mobile version of uh, the temple. And so we see, as all those things that I read, we see that the temple and the tabernacle, they're built with very similar details. And I don't know if you're like me, but when you get to these kinds of chapters in the Bible, you kind of go like, what's the point of all, like, reading all these details? Couldn't you, could you have summed it up for me? Like, why so often in the Bible do we find these very intricate, very, like, eloquent, I guess, or very wordy uh, details about how they're building various things. Why, what's the significance of that? And, and mo- even more so, what's the significance of the temple in particular? And here, I'm going to just sum up what I think is the biggest significance of the temple, although I think the temple probably had multiple significances to it. But I think that the biggest significance of the temple is this. God is sending the message that he wants to live with us. God is sending the message through the temple that he wants to live with us. So the message and the intricacies of the temple were not there to communicate that Israel has the best religion. They were there to communicate that God himself wanted to make his living place on earth. God wants to live with us. That's what the temple communicates. And that's that's been the case from the start of time. When you go to the beginning of the Bible, when you go to Genesis, and you read about this place called the Garden of Eden, the, the imagery in the Garden of Eden and the things we see happening in the Garden of Eden is really God is living with his creation. God is spending time with his creation. Eden was a place where God could coexist with his creation. And so then when we get to the building of the tabernacle and the temple, and we see all of this heavenly imagery, it's because it is hearkening back to Eden. When it's talking about these flower petals and these plants and these beautiful things, that's hearkening back to Eden. When it's talking about these cherubim, which were these these angelic beings of some sort, uh, being on the walls of the temple, it's hearkening back to Eden because Eden was a place where heaven and earth met. And in the Bible, we have to remember, heaven is not the place we escape to. Heaven is wherever God is. Heaven is the very presence of God. And in the presence of God, there's these spiritual beings and all these sorts of things. And so when you get to the beginning of Genesis, and you're reading through the Garden of Eden story, and then you see that same imagery happening in the temple, it's because the message of the temple is, I want to live with you just like I always intended to. God has always wanted to live with us. Unfortunately in the garden of Eden what Eden, what eventually happened because of sin is that that union between God and creation it was d- disrupted because of sin because of God's holiness I just really actually think God is so holy that his pr- very presence would eradicate sin and so he removed humanity from the garden of Eden and now creation becomes this place where the union between God and creation is disrupted but then if you look at the rest of the story of the Bible, if you read the rest of the story of the Bible, what you're going to find is the mission, part of the mission of God in restoring all things, part of that mission of his, he tends to bring more and more of his presence into creation. Like If you watch what God does in the trajectory and the the plot line of the Bible, you'll see that God is giving more and more of his presence. He starts off with a family, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, that turns into a people, that turns into an enslaved people that God frees. And once he he turns that people, which, which was just a large group of people, into an actual nation, and in that nation, he says, build this tabernacle. And this tabernacle became the manifest presence of God. Read about Moses and Joshua. They're sitting in the tent talking to God. Think about the the fire at night that guided them. It was with the tabernacle or from the tabernacle. The cloud during the day that guided them. The, The tabernacle was a message that God's presence is to be with his people. And so then when we get to the temple... It's just now a bigger, louder version of the tabernacle, a bigger, louder version of God saying, I want to be with you. I want to live with you. And so to me, anytime I'm reading about the tabernacle and I'm seeing all these intricate details, I feel like the, the message of the temple is clear to me. God wants his presence with us, and that's always been what he's wanted. He's always wanted to live with us. The the temple, though, uh, it it really, it's just a placeholder in the plot line of the Bible until God gives even more of his presence. The temple is just a placeholder of God's presence until we see all of God's presence one day. In fact, the temple, a lot of people say the temple itself is a pointer to Jesus, so for they, eventually the people of Israel, they have this place, this big, beautiful building that, that represents the manifest presence of God, and God wanted to be with his people and dwell with his people, but eventually that gets torn down. They rebuild it, and later after Jesus' life, that gets torn down too. But then what happens is Jesus comes to earth, God in the flesh, The the, the presence of God takes human form and comes to earth. So the temple, although it is showing us the message that God wants his presence with us, the temple is a shadow of what God actually wanted to do. He actually wanted to live here. And so eventually Jesus becomes the true and greater temple. You'll see this, I believe, in John chapter 6, where Jesus begins at times to refer to himself as the temple. That's going to be torn down because God's trajectory and mission in the Bible is a greater and a greater amount of his presence in the world. And so the temple, as beautiful as it is, as awesome as it is, it's it's not as good as God himself and so every time we're reading about the temple and we're seeing the intricate details of the temple, we should see the message that God is intricately working out, making the universe a place where he could live with us. And he started it, and he, he continued to do that through Jesus. So are you, are you lonely sometimes? Are you lonely sometimes? I am. It's because you were made to live with God. And he is working himself back into this place. And one day he will fully work himself back into his place. In fact, the way the Bible ends, the way the story of the Bible ends, is with a trajectory where God works all of his presence back into this place. Look at Revelation 21, 1-4 with me. We read this a lot in here, but it's such good news that I can't stop reading it. This is what it says, then, and this is, this is a vision that John was getting about how the restoration of all things was going to come about at the end of time. And it says this, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And so Revelation 21 is giving this big, beautiful picture of what the presence of God, what God himself is going to bring with him when he comes back to live here, with us, to dwell with us forever. And then look how this temple imagery in that same chapter is used to describe this in verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. The temple was always to represent God's presence. But it wasn't the final draft of God's presence. It was a placeholder until the day he comes in fullness. And in fact, Jesus wasn't the final draft of God's presence he was, he is a placeholder and a carrier of God's presence, and one day he will bring it all back in a much more full way. And I don't I don't know about you guys, but every time I kind of look through this idea and I see this idea that, that the fact that God's gonna come back to live with us, it just it makes my heart leap. It makes me excited. God's gonna come back. Like I know, I like I know he's gonna come back and he's gonna fix it all. I know he's going to come back he's going to fix me. I know he's going to satisfy my every longing. I know he's not going to be difficult to find anymore. I know that he wants to reunite with us, his children. God doesn't have an escape plan for us. God has a restoration plan. He's going to come back and restore all things. Make them all new. And so when we read about the temple, we have to realize the temple is a loud, physical message from God saying, I'm coming to be with you, church. I want to live with you. I want to be with you. And that was my intent the entire time. Every longing in your soul is probably a longing for God to live with you, to be with you one day. That's part of the good news of the, of the gospel. That's the message of the temple. God wants to live with you. Okay, let's now let's look at the covenant that's that's referenced here in First Kings. It's first Kings 6, 11 through 13. Let's let's read that. Now the word of the Lord came to Solomon. Concerning this house that you're building, if you will walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word, with, my word with you, which I spoke to David your father. And I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. Okay, and so a real quick definition of, of covenant for us in the Old Testament. A covenant was something, it was really like this pact it was more than a contract. It was more than a promise. It was this official kind of promise that different people would make together in that time and place and, and for a long time within that time period and place. They would make these things called covenants. And what we've seen, what we've uncovered from archaeology is that often it would be kings making these sort of promises with, with, a va- with, his, with his vassals, with all these people. And the covenants would kind of go, here's what the king will do for the people and here's what the people will do to uphold their side of the covenant. Now, sometimes they were made between kings, sometimes they were made between whole people groups, but these covenants were these really strong promises, official promises, that people in that day would make together, often on big scales, and they had dire consequences when one side didn't follow uh, their side of the covenant. They they, they almost kind of said something like, may I be torn apart if I don't uphold my side of the covenant. And so in the Old Testament, there are these four covenants that God makes with his people and with different people at different times that really are representatives of, of humanity. And so God makes a covenant with Noah, God makes a covenant with Abraham, God makes a covenant with Moses, and God makes a covenant with David, and all of the covenants have different aspects of things that God is promising he will do for his people, and so you can just read the whole Old Testament, and you'll find out what those are, and you'll find out what these different covenants have, but almost always in these covenants, you're going to find this moment where what God requires for the human side of the covenant is obedience, where God goes, hey, I want you to obey me. I want you to, to listen to me. And he, and he fleshes that out in different ways. And sometimes he talks about consequences if they don't obey. And so here in 1 Kings 6, in those verses that I just read, what we're seeing is this message of obedience, this obedient side of the covenant being highlighted again to Solomon. His own dad, David, referred to it right before he died. And now God is referring to it To Solomon as well. He's saying, hey, walk in my ways. Obey my laws. Obey my statutes. Obey my commands. And so what you'll see when you go through these old covenants uh, in the Old Testament is they almost always have some level of a message of obedience with it. And so pause that thought. Uh, uh, One thing to think about when we, anytime we encounter the old covenants in the Old Testament, They highlight a few things for us, I think. And I think here, with the whole narrative of Solomon's life, these things are highlighted as well when we see this covenant message of obedience. And and here's what they are. The first thing these covenants highlight is God's faithfulness to his people. God is faithful to his people. The second thing they highlight is that God cares about obedience. God cares about obeying him. He talks about it a lot in the covenants. And then, what they highlight for us, humans really struggle with obedience. Right? Solomon's, like, spoiler alert, Solomon's not going to walk in into statutes and commands. He's going to kind of. But it's, it's not going to work out. And so these covenants, they highlight God's faithfulness. They highlight that God cares about obedience. But they also seem to highlight to me when I'm reading the Bible that humans really struggle with obedience. In fact, they struggle so much so that that temple that Solomon built gets destroyed. And they build a second temple, and all the prophets are going. This isn't even as good as the old one, which I think was their way of saying like, There's, "God is doing something different here." We are waiting for something better. And so, it, when I read the Old Testament, I'm, it's almost like I'm left looking at these beautiful covenants of God and what, His faithfulness and His steadfast love, and I'm just going like, "It's not enough." Like, this is not enough, God. Like, I couldn't imagine being an Israelite in that day, hearing this message time and time again. Obey, or there's consequences at times. I I couldn't imagine how they felt. I feel like they must have, at some point, the sentiment amongst the people of Israel must be like, well, God, you're faithful, we're not. So we're out of luck. And just kind of have this depressed thought like, God, you're really good, we're not. So we're out of luck. And sometimes when you read... The Old Testament covenants, when you read through the Old Testament covenants, it, it feels like the message is obey or you're out of luck. But that's not the actual message of the covenants. I think sometimes we are, we're propping up human disobedience as being more powerful than God's side of the covenant. The message of the covenants that God is giving to his people, even when he's talking about obedience, are are, are this. I, I try to sum it up in like five or six phrases. God is worthy of your obedience and you were made to obey him is one message of the covenants. But even when you fail at obeying God, God will be committed to his creation. God will be torn apart to uphold both sides of the covenant. God will circumcise your hearts one day to make it so your hearts can uphold the covenant. God will bring about an everlasting king through David. And so in this moment, when we read about the obedience that we will not be able to do, and we're left saying to ourselves as we read about this big ornate temple and, this, and, and we're reading it from this book full of laws and statutes and we're left kind of going, it feels like not enough. You're right. It's not enough in one sense. You need a God who is committed to his creation when you are not. You need a God that can bear the punishment of covenant breaking when you can't. You need a God that can make your heart obey. You need a king that rules benevolently forever. And I think you can guess where I'm going. Jesus brings all of those things. Jesus' blood is the eternal lamb's blood that was shed in the temple over and over and over again. His is the eternal lamb's blood that atones for covenant-breaking. Through Jesus' cross and resurrection, we have access to a new covenant that Jesus makes. A new covenant that encompasses everything the old covenant said and offers more and does more. And so when we read about these old covenants, we should be reminded about the fact that Jesus offers a better covenant When we read about these covenants, we shouldn't go, oh, man, that was a lot. God was harsh. We should read God one day would fulfill all of it. He would do all of it for us. He would do what we can't. He would be faithful where we're unfaithful. He would be holy where we're unholy. He would be committed to his creation when we're not committed to it. He would be committed to humanity when we're not committed to each other. And then what happens with obedience in the New Covenant is obedience should always be a response to God. It should always be a worship of God. And really that's what it should be in the Old Covenant as well. But this time we are sealed with the Holy Spirit to help our hearts obey into that. And the Holy Spirit becomes this down payment, as Scripture says, to the day when God will fully circumcise our hearts and make it so that we can obey God always, all the time. And then, in the new covenant, when our hearts don't live up to it, when failure abounds, when we disobey it, just like Solomon disobeys it, the new covenant says, run to God instead. Instead of run away, Instead of, hey, there's consequences coming for you, or pull yourself up by your bootstraps, or you're gonna be exiled, the new covenant says the exile's already happened in and through Jesus on the cross, so you're always welcome at the Father's feet, at the King's feet. This old covenant that we see in the Old Testament, is beautiful. It's beautiful because it points to something that Jesus himself offered us in a much more powerful way in a stronger way, in a better way. And so we get a glimpse of these old covenants here in 1 Kings 6, but they are but a shadow pointing to the sort of better covenant that we get in Jesus and through Jesus. Okay? All right, the final thing that I want to look at is the king of First King 6, which is King Solomon, okay? This is a series where we're looking at the lives of these different kings, and so I want to make sure we try to do that as much as we can as well. So let me read uh, what's going to feel like a couple of random verses. Uh, verse 638, and then 7 verse 1. It says this, And in the eleventh year, in the month of Bull, which is the eighth month, the house was finished in all its parts and according to all its specifications. Solomon, or he, was seven years in building it. Verse 1 of 7. Solomon was building his own house 13 years, and he finished his entire house. All right, so it took the king seven years to make the temple, and it took him 13 years to make his own house. Now, there's some practical things with that. The palace was much bigger. But in the Hebrew, it's kind of hard to convey this in the English, but kind of the grammar structure of the Hebrew is essentially saying, not only was it twice as long for Solomon to build his palace instead of the temple, that Solomon, as he was building the temple, decided to stop working on the temple and build his house instead. And it wasn't until he finished his house 13 years later that he started to build the temple instead and finish up the temple. Another thing is most scholars uh, say that these verses are in here to highlight some of Solomon's character development for, for us. They're very intentional. They might seem random to us or we might be able to go, well, the palace was bigger. That's why it took longer. No, the author, again, like the author was last week we saw in 1 Kings 3, is giving us some character development of Solomon. And remember, Solomon's not all good or all bad, but he's got some troubling things with him. And one of the troubling things the author wants us to see is that Solomon seemed to care more about his palace than he cared about God's temple. Which means that Solomon cared more about his palace than he cared about the purity of Israel's worship. Because remember, because there was no temple at that time, the author notes earlier that we saw last week that the Israelites were worshiping in all sorts of ways that they probably should not have been worshiping God because they were trying to kind of do their best and the temple would have stop some of that. Or it really showed that Solomon cared more about his own home than he cared about the manifest presence of God in their midst. Right? I don't know if I'm building something and it's like hey when you finish this the presence of God is there or you could finish your house I'm gonna go I I would like the presence part. Like the presence of God. That sounds awesome. But Not that I'm better than Solomon. I probably would not have even made the temple of God because I'm that much of a knucklehead. But Solomon chooses to build his palace over the temple. And all the scholars I'm reading, that might feel like a leap, that that's the point of these verses. But all the scholars I'm reading are going, that's why this author put those details in there. They wanted to do some character development on Solomon, help us to see Solomon's not the best. He's got some troubling things that are going to lead to other troubling things that we see later in his life. Which kind of just leaves us all thinking, even the wisest king of all time, right? Last week we saw Solomon got supernatural wisdom from God and he was the wisest person of all time before him and after him. It leaves us feeling and realizing even the wisest king of all time is not enough for this world to be fixed It's not enough for someone to not make mistakes. Solomon still sins and still makes mistakes and still has this inward selfish bent. Even though he's the wisest person ever, he still has this inward selfish bent. The people of God need another king full of wisdom and without sin. And that's why Jesus came. Jesus is that king. No matter how much help God gives us humans, the disease of sin will overpower all of us. We need someone that can overpower the disease of sin. And Jesus is the king that can. And so church, every opportunity I get to kind of uh, say, you need Jesus as your king and and not some other wise ruler out there. I'm going to take it. All right? Some of you need to hear this and realize this idea more than other people in the room. You need Jesus the wise king more than any earthly king. Some of you need to realize you need Jesus the king over your life more than you are the king over your life. Some of you need to realize that about earthly kings. Some of you need to realize that about yourself as king over your life. Some of you need to realize that about whatever thing or idea or value you put as king over your life. You need Jesus as king over your life because even the wisest human ever that brought a lot of good into the world was not enough. You need King Jesus who is holy and perfect and good and the embodiment of wisdom. And so this this whole text to me, it's pointing to me that God wants to give us a better temple, God wants to give us a better covenant, and God wants to give us a better king. And the answer to all those things is basically God himself or his own work. He wants to give you himself and his own work in replacement of those things. And so church, may we hope for God's presence together. May we hope in the new covenant. And may may we hope in the wise and selfless King Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for the temple. Thank you for the old covenants. Thank you for the kings. All throughout this book and this series, God, we've seen how you speak to us through these things. You give these loud, physical messages that become metaphors for what you actually are gonna do yourself. And you did yourself. God in the flesh. And so God, this morning as we look to the temple, please soothe our hearts with the message that you wanna live with us. God, as we look at the old covenant, May we see that the new covenant embraces all of the old covenant and gives us something much better. And may we rely on you and see that you offer us a much better covenant founded totally and solely by your strength. And may we see that there's no king. There's no earthly king. There's no, none of us that can be king over our own lives that is as good as your son Jesus. Help us to see the goodness of King Jesus this morning. God, I pray that maybe there's some in here that aren't compelled by King Jesus. Would you compel them in this moment? God, I pray for us Christians in here who have many moments of not being compelled by King Jesus. Would you compel us with King Jesus this morning? Help us to realize he's the only good and wise and perfect king. And he's who we need. And so God, we love you. We're thankful for you. Help us to hope only in you. Amen.